Good afternoon again. If you have a Bible, would you take it, please, and turn to Isaiah chapter 51. Isaiah 51, if you're looking for that in a physical Bible, just open right to the middle and head to the right. And you'll eventually find Isaiah, and we're in chapter 51. Um, we've been slowly going through this book uh, of 66 chapters. We're at 51. Lord willing, we'll finish up Isaiah by the end of the year, but we'll see what happens. Um, last week, we looked at the third of four servant songs about the coming servant, and it functions as kind of an interlude between the previous section uh, and then this section, which runs from Isaiah 51 through most of 52, up actually until the fourth and the final servant song that begins in chapter 52, verse 13. So as we head towards today's passage, we have to remember what Zion, what the people of God had said back in chapters 49 and 50. So you remember this, they, they heard the promises of the servant in chapter 49, verses 1 through 13, and they were told to sing in response to them, but they did not, you remember. They did not respond with joy. Instead, they were overwhelmed by the broken down walls of Jerusalem, by the strength of Babylon that was coming up against them. In the light of God's promises, they said, we are forsaken and forgotten. We are barren and bereaved, and we are rejected and beyond the hope of rescue. Now, if you remember, God defended himself against all of those accusations already, and he hinted at their ultimate hope in that servant song of chapter 50. And here he picks up that previous conversation, and he calls his people to listen to who he is and to wake up to all that he desires to do and to be for them. But sometimes it's hard to, to hear uh, in the midst of life. Like Judah, it's, it's easy to be overwhelmed. It's hard not to look at the news and feel like the world is, is just ripping apart at the seams. Hurricanes and forest fires and flooding and disease and division and violence and more. They're, they're in no short supply right now, it would, it would seem. And that says nothing of our own individual struggles and trials that we all face. The news is one thing, but the emotional and the physical and the mental wrestling that happens every day in our own lives and in our own heads, these things are hard to face. Frederick Buechner writes words that we may uh, feel, but may, may not be so bold as to say out loud. This is what he says, the world hides God from us, or we hide ourselves from God, or for reasons of his own, God hides himself from us. But however you account for it, he is often more conspicuous by his absence than by his presence. And his absence is much of what we labor and are heavy laden by. Now you may want to say apparent absence, that's fine. But however you say it, it's true that it's often through a dim glass, it's through a, a foggy window that we look for God and it can be hard to, to trust that he is with us, especially in the darkness that we face, because his absence feels so much stronger than his presence at times. And so Isaiah 51 helps us to see the, the shape of God on the other side of the dim and the foggy window. He calls us yet again to faith, and faith that is here found in trusting that God is present even when we struggle to see him 
and he's active even when we wonder what in the world he is doing. The calls to listen here in this passage are, are calls to see God. And the, this passage helps us to see him through knowing who he is, through, through understanding what he has done and how he works in this world so that when he does seem absent, we can have faith to know that, that he is not and we can have the encouragement to stay faithful. So we're once again called to listen. Uh, Isaiah again calling us to listen and listen as a means of increasing our faith. This would be our big idea for today. Listen to all the light that God will bring into our dark world. Listen to all the light that God will bring into our dark world. In our darkness and confusion, sometimes our eyes can't find the Lord, but our ears can hear his truth. They, they can hear the light, even if we can't see it. And he helps us to find our way through all the, the shadows. So I mentioned earlier that the command to listen and to wake up mark this passage, and they actually help us follow the logic of these verses. So today we're going to hear commands to listen, three commands to listen, and then one unique call to wake up in Isaiah 51 verses 1 through 16. And then next week we're going to hear two more calls to wake up. Um, but for today our text is Isaiah 51, 1 through 16. So hear the word of the Lord. God says to us, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you, for he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion, he comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden. Her desert, like the garden of the Lord, joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and, my arm, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? of the Son of Man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord your Maker 
who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy? And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. Listen to all the light that God will bring into our dark world. As we listen, the first thing that we hear God's word say to us is this in verses one through three, God will bring life and beauty to barrenness. God will bring life and beauty to barrenness. Now these words and and all the words of this chapter, in fact, are addressed to those who are seeking after righteousness. This is the the righteous remnant in Judah, those who who were left, who were still striving towards faithfulness. They are those who have followed the path of Isaiah 50 verse 10 and chosen to walk in the light of the Lord rather than to light their own torches. Yet it seems that they are discouraged and they're wondering if it's all worth it. And it's hard to blame them. It's, it's hard to stay faithful when it feels like no one else is. It's hard to value righteousness when it seems like the wicked prosper. It's hard to love our neighbor in a world that's filled with people who are looking out only for themselves. It's hard to embrace suffering when we're told that we should only be receiving pleasure in this life. Just like this small remnant, we can wonder if our efforts are worth it, if our small choices to do the right thing and honor the Lord really accomplish anything in the world. And, and what about church? Is, is the church really God's plan for transforming our world? Our prayer and holiness and the ministry of the word and loving our neighbor, is that really the plan for transforming lives? Is the word of God and the gospel really our only hope? Into all this questioning, the Lord says, consider the rock you have been cut from. And that rock, we often associate the rock with the Lord, but it's not the Lord, it's, it's Abraham and Sarah. Consider the rock that you were cut from, the rock of Abraham and Sarah. So picture Abraham and Sarah for me. A 99-year-old man and his 90-year-old wife standing by their tents, being told that they're going to be the parents of a mighty nation, and they're going to give birth to a son within a year. As you look at Abraham and Sarah, you realize this is not the rock that we would expect God to hew a mighty nation from. They are the last people we would expect that from. If Israel was going to be a mighty statue like, say, Michelangelo's David, then as we look at at Abraham, it seems like God has chosen a pebble to shape this nation from rather than a giant block of, of marble. If Israel is going to be who they're supposed to be, Abraham is the unlikely candidate. But what the small rock Abraham had was faith. And if you know his story, it's not a perfect faith, but it is an ever-growing faith. Faith in the rock that is higher than all of us. Remember, the, the power of faith is not in its quantity. The power of faith is in its object. Little Abraham and Sarah were trusting the eternal Lord. In fact, the hope of Israel was not Abraham and Sarah, was it? But it was the promise that the Lord made to Abraham and Sarah. Their hope is the Lord. And this Lord, verse 3, is the one who turns deserts into, it turns deserts and wilderness and waste places into Eden. 
He takes us from a, a place of barrenness and frustration and tears into a place of comfort. He turns our sorrow into joy and gladness and thanksgiving and song. He gives a, an ancient couple a son that foreshadowed all the joy and the laughter that God will bring to the world through his son and the salvation that he's purchased for us. And he can do the same for all who will trust in him. So God says to, to you who pursue righteousness, to you who are a part of the people of God who are just crazy enough to think that mere words are strategy for war and that faith can move mountains, he says to us, don't grow weary in well-doing. Don't look at faithfulness in your marriage honesty in your schoolwork, kindness to strangers in the name of Jesus, integrity at your workplace, sacrificial love for your children, gospel conversations with your coworkers, or any number of small acts of faithfulness. Don't look at them and think that they are worthless because our hope is not in the apparent size of what we do, but in the Lord who crafts a, a worldwide temple from a tiny pebble like Abraham. As we are faithful in our love for God and our love for our neighbor, we can find comfort in the truth that the rock that we are cut from is Abraham and Sarah, a barren elderly couple who struggled to be faithful and who God has been eternally faithful to, seeming the fact that we who trust in Christ are the fulfillment of all the promises that were made to them. Our hope, even in small things, is always in the Lord, the Lord who turns deserts into gardens through faithfulness. So we can trust him, and we can remain faithful knowing that he will take the small things that we offer and he will accomplish his grand purposes through them. But we also see that as we're trusting him, we don't have to resign ourselves to the thought that the unrighteous are just gonna keep prospering. That's the next thing that we're called to pay attention to in verses four through six. Pay attention, give attention, listen to this. God will bring justice and salvation to all people. God will bring justice and salvation to all people. In verse four, the, the Lord tells his people, he tells his nation, at least the faithful remnant within them, that a word, a, a message, a law is going to go out and it's going to bring people from all nations to the light. His arm is spoken of in verse five, an arm that will judge and save and an arm that will call all nations, Israel and the coastlands to salvation. Again, we see God's worldwide salvation. It's not just for Israel, but it's for the, the whole world. Now, of course, the arm of the Lord here, it's not a literal arm. It represents the, the Lord's strength and particularly this work of redemption that he's going to accomplish through the servant. And in the light of this coming promised redemption, the people of God are to look to the heavens and to the earth. They're to, to look to the world around them, including nations like Babylon, and they're to know that God's all-powerful arm is going to make everything right. His justice will right every wrong, and his salvation will save everyone who trusts in him. And all the systems and the rulers and the power brokers of this world that we are so concerned about, they're going to die and wear out like an old garment. Even the heavens and the earth, we're told, are going to pass away. The world as we know it will be no more. I've had this shirt here for a long time, and you can tell. I don't know if you, can you tell that I've had it for a while? It's got some, some holes in it. This is an Umbro shirt. If you're from the, the 90s in some way, shape, or form, then you know that maybe circa 1996, I wore this to school and thought I was the coolest person in the world because it was an Umbro shirt. 
Uh, but at some point it became a work shirt, and then it became the lowest class of work shirt. It became a painting shirt. That's you know, the lowest of the low work shirts. Um, I thought that this was a great shirt, but you know what? One day, probably soon, it's going to end up in a landfill, <laughs> and it's going to slowly rot away. God tells us that the, the world and all of the things that are in it that we're so anxious about, they're going to waste away like, a, like an old painting shirt one day. Everything that we're so concerned about, it's just going to fade and fall apart. So what are you anxious and worried about? What, what do you see in the news or in your life that just fills you with dread, fills you with despair? It's all passing away. Once revered and, and treasured, feared and respected, all of it is going to be rotten very soon. One day, po possibly very soon, the heavens and the earth and all that we are so concerned about and so fearful of and so focused on, there'll be no more. They will be gone. And what will remain? It's the Lord. Verse six, but my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will never be dismayed. The Lord and all who hope in him will remain. Psalm 102, 25 through 28 speaks a similar word. This is what it says of God. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. And Jesus says, after he speaks about the end times in Matthew 24, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but what will not pass away? My words, what I say, the truth of who I am. God and the good news of his gospel will never pass away, nor will anyone who trusts in him. God in Christ has brought deliverance to the world. He has come to bring justice and salvation. In the cross, Jesus takes on the just judgment of God for sin while simultaneously displaying his amazing grace. God is just and the justifier, offering himself in our place so that we can be saved from the wrath to come. And he loves the world by laying down his life for his friends. He offers us salvation. He offers eternal life to all who would trust in him. But he's also accomplished in part and one day in full the redemption of all things, the redemption of this world that is fading away. Romans 8 says that Jesus is going to take all of creation which has been subjected to futility and he will set it free one day from the corruption and the enslavement that it's under. Or as Rich Mullins saying, the Lord takes by its corners this old world and shakes us forward and shakes us free. And how's he going to do this? How will he restore the world that's falling apart? Well, it's in the tearing and the breaking of the body of Jesus that we will remember at the end of the service. That's how he accomplishes the mending and the healing of not only our souls as we trust in him, but of all creation. He's bringing it all back together because he was torn for us. It feels, as we said at the beginning, like the world is ripping apart at the seams. And the hope for its mending, the hope for the mending of this world is no different than the hope for our eternal souls. The hope for this world is faith, faith in Jesus. We're, we're so tempted to trust something or, or someone else to make everything right, aren't we? 
we, it feels so simple to just say, trust the Lord. We want to trust ourselves even and the things that, that we can do. But to trust in anything other than the Lord and anything other than his word and his strength is like trusting in the shirt that you are wearing and thinking that it's going to last forever or that it's always going to be in style or that you're not going to tear it getting into your car today. It, it won't work. Like smoke, this world, its powers and its concerns, they're all going to vanish. But God's salvation and God's glory will be forever and his righteousness will never be dismayed. It will never be discouraged. Now this leads into the, the third part of the light of God, that, of the light that God is bringing and that we need to hear. It's connected to his justice and salvation. Verses seven and eight, we see God will bring his righteousness to bear on the wicked. God will bring his righteousness to bear on the wicked. Now we probably could have lumped that in with the previous section. It's lots of parallels. The focus is still on righteousness and the unrighteous are said to be like a moth-eaten garment in these verses as well. But the focus here seems to be uniquely on the people who mock God's children and the reality that these scoffers one day are going to be no more, just like the earth and the heavens will be no more. For now, however, the, those who revile us and those who mock us and those who reproach us and, and mock our faith in general, they feel very much alive. Uh, we read stories about people who, who mock the Lord or mock Christianity, and it, it troubles us. It, it upsets us. It angers us. It discourages us. Or someone at, at work or at the store or in our family is says something unkind or something disparaging about our faith. Someone at school mocks who Christ is and it sticks with us. And we lie in bed and we, pr we play those words over and over and over in our head and we think, is that true? Maybe we look around the world at the persecution of our brothers and sisters in Christ and we're just troubled at how those who are seeking to walk in God's righteous ways are persecuted and they're reviled and they're reproached. The comfort the Lord gives us here is that one day the wicked are going to wear out like a work shirt, but those who trust in the Lord, those who trust in his righteousness, they will not fade away, but will be transformed from one degree of glory to another. God's righteousness, God's salvation are forever, unlike the wicked in this world. As I thought about that though, note, note that the Lord doesn't call us to fight back against those who fight against us. God's call is not to assert our rights or to return their reproach and their reviling. The way of Jesus is not returning insult for insult or blow for blow. Remember, the servant Jesus Christ, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he do? He continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. God will, God will bring his righteousness to bear on the wicked. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's not ours. In fact, Jesus goes as far as to give us the model not only of, returning insult, of, of not returning insult for insult, of, uh, not of, of not growing in anger towards those who reproach us, but he calls out to the Father from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The words of Stephen echo the words of Jesus as he is murdered. And they reveal that this attitude of Jesus, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they're doing, that's not something that's just for Jesus. That's for all of his followers. So knowing that God's justice is coming doesn't fill us with this attitude that says to those who reproach us, you'll get yours one day. 
God's going to judge you, so I don't have to worry about it. That's not how we respond to people. Rather, we're filled with compassion. We know that people will be judged, and we know that we would be judged apart from God's grace. And so we ask that, Father, forgive them. Would there be a way that you could forgive those that are reproaching those who love you, those that are persecuting us? In response to all this light, there's a call to the Lord, specifically to the arm of the Lord that's mentioned in verse 5. There's this call to wake up in verse 9. A call for God to move and to do something. To bring about all of this life and beauty and justice and righteousness and all of its fullness and to bring it about right now. There's some debate about who's calling for the arm of the Lord to awake, but it seems that it's Isaiah and this righteous remnant. It's those who are suffering in exile and seeking the Lord and they cry out in verses 9 through 11. This is what they say. They say, Wake up, Lord, and deliver us now. Verses 9 through 11, the the thought is, wake up, Lord, and deliver us now. In the light of all of the, the promised light, God's people in exile say, okay, Lord, do it now. The language of the Exodus is clear in verses 9 and 10. As God's people ask the Lord to wake up like he did in days of old, they long for him to cut up and to slay the dragon that is Babylon just as he had done with Egypt. They want, they want him to, to lead them home to Jerusalem, just as he had led the Israelites through the Red Sea. And who can blame them? Don't we all look at these promises that God says he's gonna do, and, and we long for the Lord to return and just make it right now? Don't we long for this infinite scroll of disaster and disunity, of exploitation and selfishness, of murder and racism, of assault and persecution? Don't we just want it to stop? Isn't there something greater than this world of heartache that we are longing for? The picture of verse 11 certainly seems to point to something greater, greater even than the return of the exiles to Jerusalem. Look at verse 11. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. And they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Can you envision that? Can you see God's people returning to Jerusalem as if in a parade, leaping and dancing and singing as they re-enter the gates? And what do they find in the gates of Jerusalem? Everlasting joy. No more sorrow, no more sign, no more invading armies. This is what God is promising to bring. And so we too say with Judah, wake up, Lord, deliver us now. We say with the martyrs of Revelation, how long, O Lord? We groan with all creation and we take up the the cry that ends all of scripture. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. What's the Lord say to this call for him to wake up? (laughs) He says in verses 12 through 16, don't be afraid, just believe. Don't be afraid, just believe. Those are the words that are spoken to Jairus at the death of his daughter when for a moment everything seemed lost. Do you remember when Jesus said that to him? Jairus had just gotten to Jesus And Jesus was going to come and and heal his daughter, but it it all ended up being too late. And when it looked like everything had slipped through Jairus' fingers, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. 
Verse 12 takes us back again to chapter 40 as the Lord reminds us that he's not seeking to dismay or frustrate us. Instead, he's the one who comforts his people. And in light of that, he asks why we are afraid of people who die and fade like grass. We're right back to verses six and eight with the world falling apart like an old t-shirt. And we start to see that the Lord is not going to give us a timeline for his return. That's what we want. Lord, do it now. Tell us when you're going to come. But that's not what he's going to do. Rather, he's going to call us to trust him even when it feels like the world has come crashing down around us. When exile feels too long or when our child dies or anything and everything in between. Here in the Shadowlands, we, we're called to just wait. To wait and to trust. We strive to remember the Lord because as he reminds us in verse 13, we often just forget who he is. You've forgotten the Lord, your maker. We fear men and women, but verse 13, the Lord is the one who stretched out the heavens like we put a sheet on our bed or a tablecloth on our table. He laid the foundations of the earth like you might put foundation down for a backyard shed. He's in control. He is all-powerful. Verse 14 seems to hint at the fact that the Lord provides for everything that we need. Verse 15 causes us to look at all the forces of nature, the sea and the waves, hurricanes and floods and fires, and know that, it is, that he is the one who causes them and controls all of them. He is all-powerful and he is in control. Those who were, we are afraid of begin to look very small in light of who God is, but also not just in light of who God is, but in light of who God has made us to be as his children. Look at verse 16. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. Again, we don't, we not only forget who God is, but we forget who he has made us to be through faith. We're those he's given his word of salvation to proclaim. We're his representatives in this world. We're, we're those covered and protected by his omnipotent hand. And the one who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth grabs each of us as his children and all of us as his church and says to us, you are my people. Why are you so scared? Why are you so worried? You, you're my people. We can trust the Lord even as, as we long for him because we know not only his greatness and his power and his strength and his sovereignty, but we know his love. Those final words of verse 16 take the, the who of God is from some theoretical or theological reality and it puts the reality of who he is right into our hearts and it says, behold, this is your God and you are his people. This great God is yours, and he is for you. So brothers and sisters, you who pursue righteousness and the power of the Spirit of Jesus, here's what I'd like you to do. Pile up all of your struggles and your frustrations and your uncertainties about who God is or what he's doing, and just take them and lay them at God's feet. And then take all of these deep truths about, about who God is and let their light shine on you and shine on that, that pile of struggles. The truth that, that he brings light and beauty to barrenness. He brings justice and salvation to all people. He brings righteousness and judgment on the wicked. The truth of his power in all creation. 
and the reality of how puny our enemies are and how fleeting this world really is. And now let this all-powerful God embrace you. Let him wrap you up in his all-powerful arms. These arms that will one day bring the fullness of our salvation to pass. And as this omnipotent, all-powerful, great God holds you, let him whisper in your ear, you are mine. All that I have is yours. All that I am, I am for you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Can a woman forget her nursing child? I will never forget you. I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. I stretched out my arms. I died for you. My body was broken and my blood was shed. Remember who I am and remember, not just who I am, but remember that you are mine. You are my people. Think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee. Child of heaven, canst thou repine? Can you complain? Knowing that this great God says to you, you are mine. So listen to all the light that God is going to bring into our dark world. And then remember that Jesus, the light of the world, died and rose again so that it wouldn't just be some theoretical thing, but so that God would come to each of us in Christ and say, you are my people. You are my friends. God is your father. I want to invite you, if you are those who have put your faith and your trust in Christ alone, we're going to remember what Christ has done. And as we do it, I, I just want us to think of, to hold in our hearts, to hold in our minds that, that God is saying to us, I'm pursuing you, I'm coming to you, that, that you are mine, that, that he has bought us at the price of his own blood and at the, the price of his broken body. And so I want to invite you into a, a moment of silence. We'll prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper together. Uh, and then I will pray in a moment and uh, we will pass the bread and the cup and we'll take them all uh, together. So let's take a moment of silence as we uh, prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper together. Father, we thank you for your word that reveals your heart of love for us. And we thank you for the word, Jesus Christ, who has come to be the, the exact and the perfect representation of who you are. I thank you for his broken body and his shed blood that we remember that speak to us that we are your children, that you love us, you are for us. I pray that you would bless this time as we take this Lord's Supper together. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.